let's ask God to give us understanding of his word. Please pray with me. Our true and living God, we thank you that we have a word from you. Uh, we pray that as we hear it speak of your righteousness and justice, uh, we would listen to you. And as it speaks of the Lord Jesus, who can spare us from your judgment, uh, we pray that we would trust him. Help me to speak your word now truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand it and receive it with faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you angry that no builder or supplier has been held to account for the cladding scandal, that people could find their homes uninhabitable or be up for tens of thousands of dollars in rectification costs through no fault of their own? Are you disturbed that quite big businesses and franchises could be routinely robbing workers of what they're entitled to, distressed that a neighbour or a builder could just lie to you and never fulfil the commitment they made, never do the work they'd agreed to do? Are you incensed that banks could charge people for services never delivered? We want justice. We want fair dealings. And when we're the victims of injustice, of cheating and lying, it cuts very deep. Instinctively, we know as a community that we need justice, we need fair dealings, if our community is going to prosper. And without that kind of fair dealing, trust vanishes and the poor, who are less able to access courts, less able to insist on being treated properly, are exploited. We want justice, fair dealings. And Deuteronomy 25 shows us some of the Lord's provision for Israel to be a just and fair society in their context, an ancient agricultural society where family was central to identity, to security and prosperity. But in all its specific peculiarities, and there are some peculiarities there, you know, lever at marriage, that's where, you know, the brother-in-law is meant to marry the deceased brother's wife, corporal punishment, animal-powered threshing. In all these distinctives, Deuteronomy 25 will actually tell us more. It will tell us about the Lord, the only God, the God who gives these laws and establishes justice. It will give us his standards for judging. Tell us some of what he hates and who will face his judgment. And that's important for the Christian gospel tells us there will be a judgment. A day when the Lord, the living creator God, will judge the hearts and actions of all women and men through his son Jesus. That in Paul's words, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. The certainty of that judgment is part of the message we believed when we became followers of Jesus, part of the message we share. And we should live ready for that day and know where we will stand in that judgment and not just us. All should be ready to face the Lord on that day and so all should know what the Lord's standards are in judging 
Who will face his condemnation in that judgment and who will escape? And so listening to God's word today, his ancient word, yet his living word, could save your life and equip you to save the lives of others through sharing the truth with them. So what does the Lord expect of just judges in a just society? Verse 1, if there's a dispute between men and they come into court and the judges decide between them, acquitting the guilty and condemning the innocent. The standard a just judge must meet is the standard of justice, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. That's what a righteous, a just judge will do. So they declare the righteous those who have in this case kept the standards of the covenant Israel has entered into with God, they declare the righteous to be righteous and they condemn those who have broken God-given standards, the God-given standards of the law. So a just judge doesn't declare the guilty innocent, doesn't justify lawbreakers and they don't condemn the innocent. They give people a verdict according to what people have done in line with their deeds and words and thoughts. Now this is the same standard the word of God teaches us to expect of the Lord himself. It's what his people appeal to. Solomon, praying when the temple was consecrated, asked the Lord to condemn the guilty and to vindicate the righteous. God will be just in judgment acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. And in the Old and the New Testaments, he is the one who will give people according to what they have done, as their words and actions deserve, as Paul says. He will render to each one according to his or her works. And the Lord expects the sentence, the punishment a just judge gives, to be proportionate to the crime. Again, giving each one what they deserve. Now, in Israel, for some crimes, the deserved punishment would be death. For others, restitution. For others, as we see here, corporal punishment. There is no provision in the law for imprisonment. So the just judge shall call the guilty person, cause the guilty person to lie down and he'll be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offence. A lesser offence receives a lesser punishment, a more serious offence, a greater punishment. Now this commitment to proportionality, to giving to people according to what they've done, is seen in verses 11 to 12, which at first sight are strange and horrifying verses, aren't they? When men fight with one another and the wife of the one draws near to rescue her husband from the man of him who is beating him and puts out a hand and seizes him by the private parts, then you shall cut off her hand. Your eye shall have no pity. Now, the context here is families and the continuity of the family line. Uh, the provision of verses 5 to 10 for a widow to marry her husband's brother is a provision to ensure the continuing presence of the deceased brother's name in Israel. 
his continuing place in the people of God and in the inheritance the Lord has given his people. The family was the key unit in Israel's covenant relationship with the Lord and the family's continuing enjoyment of relationship with the Lord was through offspring, through children. And so offspring, children, are key in that society. Verses 7 to 10 deals with the unrighteousness of a man who will not, for unspecified reasons, take his brother's widow as a wife to raise up for his brother someone who can carry on his brother's name. Now, verse 10, the result of his unrighteousness, his refusal will be permanent shame in his name throughout the generations, that his family will be family called the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. Uh, quite a long name, would have taken a big box on the forms, but it was permanent and it would have got the message across. The result of his unrighteousness is permanent shame in his name. Now verses 11 to 12 then deal with the unrighteousness of a woman who intentionally grasps a man by his testicles, thus threatening his capacity to have offspring, denying him the continuity of his family line. And so her punishment is also permanent and public. See, like the name, there is no hiding the shame. And it's thought that the hand is chosen not only because it's the offending part that has acted shamefully, but also because hand was used as a euphemism for a man's private parts. This punishment of the woman is thus a special application of what's uh, called the law of retribution. You know, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is a law of strict and limited proportionality in punishment. As her hand cut off offspring from his hand, so her hand is cut off. Now we might think that's hard, but we are not a culture as invested in children as they are, as dependent on children for continuing belonging as they were. And you see, the Lord publicises this judgement ahead of time so it can have a deterrent effect, stop people from doing that. Let me say that continues to be the case, doesn't it? God's word teaches us, warns us ahead of time what to expect of God's judgment so that we can also avoid it. Paul, speaking in Romans 2, says, He, the Lord, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. There is no injustice in a judgment where people are given what they deserve and have been warned. And we have been warned. 
And in this context of providing for justice and fairness in Israel, the Lord also gives an example of behaviour that must not be present in Israel amongst his people, behaviour that he says is an abomination to him, hateful to him. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and a fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. The Lord insists on fairness in commercial dealings. In those days, people would buy uh, staples uh, like wheat and barley and lots of other commodities using balance or beam scales. The merchant, when buying or selling, would put his weight on one side and then the grain, say, for example, would be put in a large pan or sack on the other. And what's forbidden here is having two versions of the same weight. So to, to get our head around it, let's, let's call that weight a kilogram. That's what the merchant's putting, as it were, on his side of the scale. When buying, a crooked merchant's kilogram weight would actually be heavier than a kilogram. It might actually, say, weigh another 100, 100 grams. So if the price was, say, $10 a kilo, well, he would be getting more for his $10. More grain would have to be poured into the other pan to balance his weight. And when selling, he would have a kilogram weight that was actually less than a kilogram, say 900 grams. So if the price was $10 a kilogram, he would get more money or less. He'd get $10 for 900 grams. In both cases, you see, he would be a profit. He would, sorry, make more profit. And in both cases, he would be cheating either the seller or the buyer. Now, the effect of this cheating would, of course, be to enrich himself, but it would be at the cost of impoverishing the poor, especially in times of scarcity when the price of grain went up. And such smart practices would destroy trust and breed suspicion and quarrels in a community that was meant to be a model of loving relationships. The Lord calls for weights and measures to be full and fair. Now the word full is actually related to the word for peace. It has the sense of whole, sound, something being what it should be. And the word fair is actually the word for righteous or just, something that conforms to the established standard. Now, in Israel it meant more than that. It meant something in line with the character of the Lord who is righteous, who establishes and maintains the standard. And the Lord gives two reasons for commercial honesty. Firstly, those who practice who, who by, firstly, by practising righteousness in their dealings, the people would live long in the land because they would be conforming their lives to the covenant established with their righteous God. They'd be welcome in his presence. But secondly, verse, uh, yeah, verse 16, if they abandon righteous measures, 
they'll become an abomination to the Lord like idols. Or those who practice idolatry or embrace sexual confusion or temple prostitution. Those who are an abomination cannot live in the holy God's presence for his presence would be destruction to them. But this law is more than just the outlawing of sharp commercial practices. Though they still exist and they still incur the Lord's judgment, I mean, they still exist, don't they? Whether that's deceiving by packaging or false warranties or failing to deliver all that's promised or simply putting your finger on the scales or not returning excess change when the cashier's made a mistake. There's still dishonesty in commercial dealings. But the strength of the Lord's condemnation tells us the Lord hates the corruption of standards. You see, justice and fairness require objective standards that we can all appeal to, that mean we know what we're getting. The dishonest merchant is changing the standard for personal advantage. And that is actually a claim to be God. To be able to order the world, to engage with others in ways that suit you and you decide. In changing the standard, someone is claiming the power to make the rules and to be accountable for their conduct only to themselves and not to the standard the Lord has set. They're saying, if it's right with me, then that's the way the world should operate. See, changing the standard isn't some small thing. It's actually quite serious. Yet we do this across the board in our society in so many ways. Take telling the truth. The Lord says we should tell the truth. But we allow ourselves to shape the story, to be selective with the truth, even to lie if it makes our case. We say that's okay. Or sexual morality. Well, what the Lord forbids, we so often declare to be right, whether that's sex outside marriage or same-sex sexual activity. What is right and wrong, we say now, depends on how we feel. We even change the boundaries, the God-given standard in marriage. Some in our society say, call greed good as well. In fact, We've become a society where many deny that there is actually a standard outside ourselves to which we might be accountable. You know, the prophet Isaiah saw this extreme in his day and pronounced this woe. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Confusion and corruption, the changing of the standard to suit ourselves, our pleasure and profit, is an abomination to the Lord. And those who practice this dishonesty, the Lord says, cannot live in his presence, must be removed from his presence, consumed in his judgment. The Lord's standards for judges, to give to each what they deserve, what the Lord hates, the corruption of the standard where we decide, where we define for ourselves what will be right and wrong. And Deuteronomy 25 also tells us who will suffer the Lord's judgment. 
Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Now the Amalekites were descendants of Esau and were roving marauders, raiders seeking plunder. And they're recorded in Exodus 17 as attacking Israel on the way to Mount Sinai as they were coming out of Egypt. And the Lord decided then that he would blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, that they no longer, in a sense, exist on the earth. Now, what was Amalek's sin that brought upon them this awful judgment? Well, they attacked the faint and weary. They made victims of the most vulnerable, showing no compassion. And they had no fear of God. They were not restrained by the thought of judgment of God acting. They didn't hesitate to harm those made in God's image where that truth should actually be protecting the vulnerable and the weak. They were a law to themselves, accountable only to themselves and therefore capable of great cruelty towards others if it advanced their interests. And we see that, don't we? Where fear of God is lost, so is restraint in dealing with others as the atheist regimes of the 20th century have demonstrated abundantly. And they directly opposed the Lord's purpose. The people the Lord was saving, they were trying to destroy for their own profit. The people the Lord was liberating, they were oppressing. And the Lord determined to judge them. And he pronounces his judgment to blot out any trace of them from the earth, even if the execution of that sentence would be delayed, verse 19, until Israel has rest from its enemies. And what happened to the Amalekites? Well, that sentence was carried out. More than 300 years later, Saul was commissioned to destroy them. And he did in the main, though it was incomplete. And then another 300 years after that, it's recorded that finally in the days of Hezekiah, the remnant of the Amalekites was destroyed completely. They were destroyed completely from the face of the earth. Now the Amalekites become a type of all those who do not fear God who are confident, in a sense, in their own capacity, their own pride, and use and oppress and kill others, as though they are God in the world and all others are there just to serve their purpose. They're a type of all those who oppose the Lord's saving purpose and oppress his people, who hate those whom the Lord loves. And the Lord's sentence on them is settled and certain even if it's delayed. He has declared that there will be a day, Isaiah 2, when all the pride of humanity is brought low and he alone is exalted, exalted in justice and righteousness. A day when those who oppose him will no longer be able to hide 
from his wrath. We need to take to heart what the Lord says about judgment, what he says he hates and those he says he will judge. Those who corrupt his standards to suit themselves, those who have no fear of him, those who oppose his saving purpose, those who make themselves and their idols God. We need to take that to heart for there is a judgment. Now you would not know that from the behaviour of the people around you. As Jesus said, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, the time of that judgment. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. You cannot take your guidance about God's plans and times from the society around you. They will be unaware, thinking, willing, life to go on as normal. But you know, sometimes you wouldn't know that judgment was certain from the behaviour of believers. They too seem immersed in this life, thinking the delay in judgment means it's postponed forever. And so some believers live preoccupied with this life, trying to be just like their neighbours, living consumed with what our Lord Jesus called in the parable of the sower, the cares of this world, the delight in riches, the desire for other things that choke the gospel word and make it unfruitful. Now, brothers and sisters, we must not let that be us. Judgment is part of the gospel. The time is unknown, but it is certain. So who will be justified in that judgment? A just judge, and the Lord is a just judge, only justifies the innocent, only declares righteous the righteous. And which of us has not changed the Lord's standards to suit ourselves, bent the truth, missed the mark of living up to what he expects, whether that's in treating others fairly or living pure lives? Which of us has not acted in our little world like a little God, not fearing God and giving him thanks and praise, but wanting things our way and treating others made in his image as if they were just there for our benefit, to make our life comfortable, to be organised by our will. Which of us has actually given God what he deserves, loved him with all our hearts, minds, soul and strength and loved our neighbours consistently as ourselves? Who amongst us would not be justly condemned by a just judge? As scripture says, we have all sinned. And if you doubt that, come and speak with me. For if you believe that you haven't sinned, you really have corrupted the standard and replaced it with your own. So can any of us have hope in that judgment which is sure and certain? And the answer is no, not in ourselves. The only hope we can have is actually in the Lord who justly condemns us. The Lord who has declared himself to be the gracious and compassionate God. That's what he said in Exodus 34, merciful and gracious, 
slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, the God who has compassion on the poor and needy, the weak and vulnerable, on the helpless, those who cannot help themselves. And the Lord shows himself to be so in his law, making sure that Israel is not only a just community but a generous one. We actually see that the Lord is gracious and compassionate in the law he gives in Deuteronomy 25. Take verse 3. Even as he makes provision for a proportionate punishment, he sets a limit to that punishment so that their brother is not degraded, humiliated in their sight. You see, there's to be respect for the humanity even of the criminal who is spoken of as your brother, someone who's to be restored to participation in, in Israelite society. And then verse 4, even the domestic animals are to share in the blessings that the Lord bestows on his people. Our grain was threshed by oxen pulling a sled with sharp stones embedded in it over the laid out grain. And that's not entirely equivalent as a donkey and an ox, but that's from present day Afghanistan, right? Now, that ox was not to be prevented from eating some of the bounty the Lord provided through the ox's labour. Now, Paul in the New Testament, we know, applies this verse unflatteringly to Christian gospel workers. But for now, we should note the Lord's determination that the poor, as we saw in the last chapters, and the animals would share in his generous provision. And the provisions of verse is 5 to 10 and not just for the continuation of the name of the deceased brother. They also make provision for the widow who was very vulnerable in that society. If the brother does what he ought and marries her, then she has a secure and continuing place in the family and she has a son to care for her as she grows older. And if the living brother does not do the right thing by his deceased brother, well, then the widow has a process by which she's freed from the living brother's authority, freed to enjoy her husband's property or remarry outside the family. The Lord consistently makes provision, as we've seen, for the poor and needy, and he expects his people to be gracious and compassionate as he is. That graciousness and his faithfulness to his promises, we've seen throughout Deuteronomy, haven't we? in his perseverance with rebellious Israel, his bringing them to the promised land, his provision of his good law. The Lord is as he says he is, gracious, compassionate and faithful. And because he is, those who turn to him can have hope to be spared in his judgment, have hope for mercy. We see that with David, don't we? An adulterer somebody who organised the killing of Bathsheba's husband, still found mercy. But how can the Lord be gracious and compassionate to sinners, to people who deserve judgment and still maintain his justice? How can he be merciful to people like the Amalekites who are opposed to God? How can he be merciful to people who are like those dishonest merchants who change the standards to suit themselves. A righteous and just God 
justifies the just, declares the righteous righteous and condemns the wicked. He gives to people, as he said, what they deserve. And what we all deserve is death, to be driven from the presence of the holy God. So how can he be gracious and compassionate to sinners and still maintain his justice? Now I hope you feel the importance of that question for we need justice as well as mercy. A world where God was indifferent to justice, whether it, where it made no difference if you cheated and oppressed, made no difference if you made victims of the weak and the frail or not, where evil just had to be accepted, that would be a dreadful world and we wouldn't want to live in it. A God who made no distinction between a Hitler and a Mother Teresa, well, that would not be a God worth worshipping. How can the Lord, who abhors those who corrupt and twist the standard, uphold his standards and still have mercy? Now, thankfully, this is not a question for our speculation. In God's power and wisdom, we don't have a theoretical answer. We have God's own saving answer, and it is Jesus. God himself answers the question in his son. Paul again in Romans. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. That's right, isn't it? He had not killed David there on the spot, had he? It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul says Jesus is the propitiation for our sin, that is, the only God-provided sacrifice that can turn away God's just anger from our ugly and destructive sin. And Jesus is this propitiation by his death, where he endures the penalty our sin deserves in himself on the cross. What we deserve to be given in God's just judgment is actually given to the Lord Jesus in our place. It's in the sacrifice of his son that God demonstrates his righteousness. He upholds his standards, punishing our sin with the death it deserves in the death of his son. And he upholds his faithfulness, showing mercy as he promised in forgiving all who call to him, who turn to him, now by believing the gospel of his son, that Jesus has died for our sins, that he's been raised from the dead, and that he now reigns with authority to forgive and to judge. Because of the death of Jesus, the Lord, Father, Son and Spirit, is the God who justifies the unjust justly, who declares 
righteous sinners righteously. He is the God who, while himself being just and righteous, always upholding his standards, his absolute standards, still justifies the unjust and shows mercy. The God we can rely on to be himself always. And that is wonderful. See, we can have confidence that he is the just judge of the whole earth. And no sin will escape his judgment. And we can have confidence that he is, as he said, the merciful and gracious God. And because of the death of Jesus, we can have confidence, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, that Jesus is the one who can save us from the wrath to come, spare us in that judgment so that we are declared righteous for his sake. Brothers and sisters, God's word reminds us that the Lord is the just and righteous God. He is the righteous judge of all the earth. And the gospel tells us that he will judge all and judge all righteously, giving to all what they deserve according to what they've done. So we need to be ready for that day whether it's tomorrow or whether it's hundreds of years away. We need to be ready because it is certain. And if you're a believer in Jesus, being ready means persevering in trusting Jesus, who alone can deliver us from the wrath to come. Persevere in trusting him so that on that day we are given what Jesus deserves, just as Jesus has taken upon himself on the cross what we deserve. We need to be ready by persevering in trusting Jesus and persevering in living to please him, for he is our Lord, and not being distracted by the cares and the riches of this world and not growing weary in doing good. We're ready for that day by keeping on. Keeping on, as we've been reminded today, in living a life that's characterised by treating all justly, fairly, generously. We need to be ready for that day by hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Where you cannot be satisfied if you think you've wronged or cheated someone, being less than honest or fair, where you long to live in conformity with God's good standards because you are so grateful for such a good saviour who has brought you to know this just and righteous God as your father. And if you're not yet a believer, well, think about this. Did you think that the living God could speak to you through this ancient word that you've heard read today? But no, he has. He has brought you here to hear his word and to tell you that there is a judgment to come and that if you keep on living as you are, not fearing God, twisting and corrupting his standards for your own benefit, you will face his wrath. He has brought you here and he has spoken to you because he is gracious 
speaks his word to warn you so that you will find mercy by turning back to him, by confessing Jesus his son to be your living Lord. Now God did not need to do that. Just as he did not need to give his son to give you and I the possibility to be right with him, to be justified in his judgment. But he has. You are here. You have heard his word because he is gracious and merciful. Do not despise his generosity. Confess your sin and ask the Lord Jesus, the judge of the last day, to forgive you and make you his own. And you can do that just by calling out to him. He lives, he will hear you. And if you're not ready to do that, we'll find out more about Jesus. Find out more about that day. Ask your questions and have them answered. And come and talk or talk to the believer you know. But know, as all of us must know, that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus whom he's appointed. And he has given assurance to all of us by raising Jesus from the dead. Jesus is risen. He lives and reigns forever. And that day is certain. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray in your mercy that we would not hear this word and forget. In your mercy, please grant those of us who say we trust Jesus to persevere in trusting him, to have confidence in him for mercy and pardon on that day. Please move those of us who trust him to give ourselves now to living to please him, to living righteous, just and generous lives. And gracious Father, in your mercy, please convict those who do not yet trust Jesus of the reality of that day and that they will stand before you. Convict them of their nakedness on that day. And gracious Father, let them turn to Jesus for forgiveness, to be clothed in his righteousness at that time, so they don't experience your wrath, but come to know your welcome. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.